Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm absolutely thrilled today to welcome Hussein Kamali, who is an Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at Hartford Seminary and in Connecticut. He's coming to us from New York and he's a Middle Eastern scholar and he focuses on the history of ideas. Um, and he's the author of a book, God and Man in Tehran. But we're here today to talk to him about a book I stumbled across on Amazon and absolutely fell in love with. And that is A History of Islam in 21 Women. Hussein, welcome. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much for having me on your really engaging podcast series. Oh, no, thank you so much for joining us. I love your book. I absolutely, I loved it from the second I saw the title because I just thought, wow, what an idea. Um, And I'm really excited that you're going to share some of your favorite stories for it. So I imagine, first off, it must have been hard just to pick 21. Oh, yes. That was a big part of the, of, um, choosing the women, which women to include, and also the argument is partly in that selection, right? Who mm. is to be included and who is not. And I've been really horrible to you because I've asked you to cut it to your top 10 for us today, um, which I think we're going to do in chronological order, aren't we? Sure, sure. You can do that by all means. So I'm really looking forward to hear your story. So start us off. Who did you pick first? I think this is such an important one. And we said, didn't we, when we were planning the show, well, this lady has to be in there and then there'll just be nine more. Uh, Right. I mean, the first choice was easy. Uh, Khadija uh, made her mark on the history of Islam as the first believer, Mm -hmm. the very first moment, right? So no wonder that hers is the first of the uh, 21 biographies in the book. I love it. I love that the first woman to follow the word of Islam um, is a woman. Uh, sorry, the first person to follow right. the word of Islam is a woman. Um, and tell us why. Who is she? I mean, today it's more important than ever to mm-hmm. highlight that the first person to receive and accept the message of Islam was a woman. Um, and well, Khadija was married to the Prophet Muhammad, and her biography is intertwined with his. Mm-hmm. And as a witness uh, to the Prophet's sincerity of heart and nobility of spirit, he offered him love and bolstered his resolve. Um, and, you know, so it was, she, she was the uh, most straightforward pick, I think. Absolutely. Um, what do you like most about her? Um, Is it her unwavering support of the Prophet? Not only that... Um, you know, there is a tendency to talk about her in in a supportive uh, sense, to talk about her as the as the support. 
But I think we need to kind of unpack the meaning of support. Mm -hmm. It was not just financial support. It was the love and faith that she provided. Uh, not only did she believe what her husband said, she believed in him. Um, so, so, you know, sometimes uh, her husband, before becoming a prophet, would withdraw to a cave in a nearby hill, less than an hour's walk from where they lived together, uh, their home. In, in 1989, archaeological excavations in the city of Mecca unearthed the remains of a building that is believed to have been the house in which the Prophet and Khadija lived for, mm -hmm. for over 20 years. Now, one summer night in the year 610, when Khadija's husband was about 40 years old, he cut short his habitual period of seclusion. And something inexplicable had happened. He had experienced and encountered the fascinating and yet terrifying mystery of the Divine Presence. Having seen and heard an angel, rushing back home, he confided in Khadija. He confided what he had experienced. And she believed him, as I said. Uh, and she believed in him. So not only did Khadija assure him that God would never delude a trusted man who rescued debtors from debt, who fed the hungry, who spoke only the truth, and who only and always stood for justice. Um, but also she told him, assured him in his conviction that he was a chosen prophet, right? And, and she resolved to support and to protect uh, the divine prophet. So I think it is more than just providing um, support by, by spending her wealth on, on the mission of the prophet, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, what do we know about her as a person? Was she was she a wealthy person? Because this she is was a, a wealthy person. This is, so we think she lived, don't we, about five sixty to six nineteen. Right. 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 The, um, the the birth date, the birth year is kind of uh, speculative, mm -hmm. but the year of her death is uh, known um, um, uh, for certain. Yeah. The prophet called that the year of grief as the bleakest of his years. Um, what we know about Khadija in the, from our uh, sources is that she was a woman of means. She was independent. She had a, a trade caravan that at some point she entrusted to the young uh, Muhammad son of Abdullah, uh, a man from her own tribe. And, 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 Appreciated of his honesty and other personal qualities, I'm sure, mm -hmm. um, she offered her hand to him in marriage. And she bore children uh, for him and with him. And, and um, I think she was his rock in Mecca during those uh, early years, those uh, early 10 years uh, of what we know about the beginnings of Islam. Before 622, that marks the beginning of the Islamic calendar, right? The, the yeah. Hadith was three years before that. Um, and then, you know, the Bible tells us no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So uh, Muhammad had to leave Mecca and he went to Medina. And then a new chapter opened in the history of Islam. Mm -hmm. um, but and less than a decade later, uh, 
the Prophet returned to Mecca triumphantly. And shortly after that, his followers uh, embarked on an enterprise of, of disseminating Islam worldwide. But I think that the history of Islam might have been different that Khadija lived longer. Um, really? And whether this is the case or not, she already left a decisive impact on the early formative period uh, in Mecca of what we know as, as Islam. And she's a towering figure in, uh, in, in, in the history of Islam, at least in my history, in my version, mm. my telling of a, a history of Islam. I love that, um, that it's a, a joint powerful beginning between a man and a woman. Um, that sparks Islam to life. Like you say, it's more than just financial support. It's the emotional support um, and it's being his rock. I, I just, uh, we said, didn't we? She has to be number one on the list. Um, but the next person you've chosen comes a couple of hundred years later, or sorry, a hundred years later. She's born about a hundred years after um, Khadija dies. And it's Rabia. And she comes at a very important moment um, in the Islamic history. Why is that? Right. Um... Let me say this, Alex, that these biographies, all 21 of them, more or less, are contested biographies. Yes. Um, right. So I've been I've done my best to avoid controversy mm -hmm. um, to the extent possible. Um, I have focused on the agency of women and the retelling of this history by putting women at the center. Now, yeah. there are many other kinds of telling this history, the history of the caliphate, the history of kings, the history of empires, uh, or some, kind, uh, some kinds of ideas that are histories of Sufism. But instead of uh, talking about Sufism, I have turned to uh, Rabia of Basra, mm -hmm. lived from around 717 to 801, as probably the most celebrated female Sufi of all time. And tell us about her. What do we know about her historically? And why is she important? Well, we um, don't have any contemporary reports on her. Mm -hmm. And nothing of her own writing uh, has reached us directly. But sources tell us a lot about, him, about her. I apologize. Um, she lived in the 8th century, a time that marked a watershed moment in the history of Islam decisive, a decisive political, economic, and ideological transition had occurred. Um, and the Muslim commonwealth, as we might call it, or the Muslim world had taken shape by the middle of the, of the 8th century. A Muslim world that extended from Central Asia, commonly referred to as the Greater Khorasan, all the way to what is Spain, to the Iberian Peninsula and what the Muslims knew as Al-Andalus. By the time <coughs> Rabia was born, a lot had changed since the early days of Islam during the lifetime of Khadija. Uh, when she came of age, all the companions who had seen the Prophet in person had died. And faced with urgent questions and pressing dilemmas, her generation often wondered, what is faith? Who is a good Muslim? What would the Prophet say? What would the Prophet do? And not only in Medina and Mecca, where the Prophet once lived, but also in other towns, such as uh, where Rabia lived in Basra, men and women 
contributed answers to these unrelated questions. And Rabia was one of them, and one of the most remarkable of such individuals who laid the mark on, on what, what is Islam, and in particular, what is uh, understood to, to be uh, Sufism. Um, now, her world, the time that she lived in, not her world, was a, was a world of extravagance. Mm -hmm. A world that is reflected in the stories uh, that, that Shahrazad tells us in the 1001 Nights, or the Arabian Nights. Yeah. Um, and that includes Aladdin, not, doesn't it, for our listeners uh, including, who are with Arabic, um, as Sinbad the Sailor and Aladdin, or things they've all those heard Those stories, right? The 40 Thieves of Baghdad, that seems yep. to have been a later addition to, uh, to the book. But, but, but the book is clear enough in its stories and what we know from other that the 8th century was a time when people saw before their eyes how treasures amassed by sheer luck as you say in Sinbad the sailor mm -hmm. or by hard work and they vanished as fortuitously as they had come with the sinking of a ship a fire in the storehouse or simply by death addressing the anxieties and insecurities of her time, Rabia preached in and outside mosques in Basra. It's important, women did preach in mosques at the time. Mm -hmm. She often recited poems about the fragility of life and the urgency of turning uh, to God and the, and the importance of worshiping God not for reward and not in fear of punishment, but for um, the pure uh, love of God. Uh, this is one of her major um, cont uh, contributions. Um, uh, let me let me recite a prose tra translation of mm -hmm. of one of her poems. The poem attributed to her. I'm reworking. I reworked a translation by Reynold Nicholson, um, who and the poem is: "O oh Lord, should I worship you for fear of punishment?" Then burn me in hellfire. And should I worship you for reward, keep me out of paradise. But I worship you only for you. So do not withhold from me for eternal countenance. Right? So mm -hmm. uh, this is what we know of uh, her. Yeah. Her legacy about her story that we know a lot from later sources. As you, I think this is... Uh, the point that you brought up. Some sources written at least a few generations after her time claim that during Rabia's childhood, when a famine had struck Basra, her father had sold her into slavery. Some sources add that she served as a slave owner's singing girl for a while. Mm -hmm. Others describe her as a woman with servants herself, maybe at a later point in her life. Um, these tidbits may or may not be accurate, um, but we know that female orators and renunciants or uh, ascetics uh, named Rabia um, were there in Basra and elsewhere. More than one of them even have the same uh, tribal affiliation, Al-Adawiyya, which is from <coughs> an important Arab tribe. Um, one academic uh, tells us and I quote, um, uh, this is, this is um, uh, Robinson, 
there are as many versions of Rabia's hagiographic persona as there are accounts of her. Ace Robinson wrote this. Um, <laughs> so, it's, a dif- it's a difficult time, isn't it? Um, we're still looking at, like, so the year of birth is given as the year 717. Right. Um, but you, you move forward with your next choice, and we leave modern-day Iraq, don't we, and go to Yemen instead. Um, yeah. Tell us who you've picked next. Oh, the embattled Yemen of today, right? Yes, Which is well absolutely, worth tragically. About the suffering of the people so inhumanely um, mm-hmm. put under pressure uh, for several years now, right? Yeah. Um, well, we are talking about better times in Yemen, better times in Yemen in the 11th century. We're talking about Queen Arwa, who um, lived from around 1050 in the 11th century to 1138. Um, of the common era. So in the uh, 12th century, she ruled effectively for half a century from her base in the town of Jibla in Yemen. Mm-hmm. She was a remarkable sovereign. Um, she was neither the first nor the only Muslim woman to rule over the past 14 centuries of Islamic history. As it were, well, you've got lovely subtitles for each of the women in your book, and you've put the Queen of Sheba redux for this one, right, haven't you? Right. And, and that comes from historical sources. Uh, historical sources that talk about her do refer to her uh, as, as a second uh, Queen of Sheba. Right? So there is that long memory. So why is she? Why does she reign for so long? Um, and why is she recognised as such a great sovereign? Um, you know, she was born around 1050, as I said, and she had lost both parents at a young age, and um, family ties brought her to the household of her uncle, who happened to rule a Yemen or part of Yemen at the time. And there she was taken under the wings of her aunt, a formidable woman herself. And then Arwa married her cousin at the age of 17. And this cousin was heir to his father's uh, throne. However, we know that the husband was uh, in poor health or um, not competent or whatever. So he delegated his powers and authority to Arwa. And she co-reigned the state with her mother-in-law, uh, right, the, who was also her aunt, and we talked about that earlier. This arrangement lasted until um, the aunt died in 1087. From then on, Arwa was the de facto ruler of the territories of her, of her family, right? And her life, her dirty lady life, was typical a Muslim sovereign's life at the time. She held court, minted coins, fought wars, negotiated peace treaties, collected taxes, and tribute. She built cities, mosques, marketplaces, and extended patronage to builders, poets, and other exponents of high culture. Um, there is a story um, that I don't have it in the book, but I was struck by it when I read it. So Arwa's daughter went to her and complained that her husband um, was trying to, or was eager to marry a second wife. So Arwa's daughter complained to her mother about this, and Arwa sent the military 
made an offer that the guy could not refuse. Right? So no second marriage for, uh, for that. See, she was, she meant business. And uh, her uh, place of burial today, even today, is a place, is a site for pilgrimage. Uh, you know, there's a Queen Arwa Mosque. And it is still a, an important place of pilgrimage mm-hmm. in, in, in Yemen. I think that's fantastic that she still has a, a legacy there. Um, the next person you picked, uh, we go to modern Morocco, don't we? Um, and this is, so she, her approximate year of birth, again, is uh, the year that Columbus reached exactly. the new world. So right. we're coming into that kind of time period now. But who is she and why does she make your top 10? Right. We, we don't really know uh, her date of birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my... Um, Termites. This is my hypothesis. This is my guess, and I deliberately said 1492, just to make that connection uh, to that important year that is sometimes and often mentioned as a the beginning of a new chapter in human history, and it was in many ways. And part of that new history has to do with the story of um, this uh, noble woman of Tetuan. Uh, the free woman or the noble woman of Tetuan. Uh, this Mediterranean port of Tetuan stands a few miles inland on the southern side of the Strait of Gibraltar, about 60 kilometers from Tangier, as you mm-hmm. said, in Morocco. Now, the United Nations Educational and Cultural Organization, the UNESCO, uh, recognizes Tetuan as part of the Creative Cities Network worldwide. And half a millennium before our time, a Muslim woman, uh, our noble woman ruled over this port and its surrounding territory. Um, she was born in uh, Shefshawan, uh, a popular tourist destination in Morocco today, which is best known for its beautiful blue painted walls and pavement. At the turn of the 16th century, when our free noble woman was still a child, Muslim rule over the Iberian Peninsula ended. And that is the faithful year 1492. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually that's the date that is emphasized. Spanish and Portuguese crowns had heightened offensives to conquer Muslim territories in Al-Andalus and across the Straits of Gibraltar in Northwest Africa or Al-Maghrib. And they had launched a renewed phase of the Crusades and they called them Reconquista, taking back. Um, and that's what we know that period as the early modern history of of uh, naval expansions mm-hmm. and, and um, the free woman of Tetuan played a role um, in that. They uh, call her the pirate queen, don't they? Um, yes, European sources sometimes uh, call her a, a, a pirate. Well, one man's pirate is another man's queen. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so in a way, uh, she caused a lot of damage to, to the armada of the Portuguese, especially, and the uh, Spanish. But, but we also know her as a formidable uh, ruler and negotiator who managed to rule, again, for, for decades, for a long time. And she fought against uh, the encroachments of, of um, Portuguese uh, colonialists um, on her ancestral homeland for half a century almost. Uh, 
right? And there are some stories from what we I could I could gather from the sources about her. You know, Muslim historians have for the most part ignored her. What we know about her mostly comes from European uh, sources that, as you say, uh, sometimes often refer to her as a as a pirate. And why, for you, does she deserve a place in the top ten? Well, um, the geographic coverage of the book is is rather vast, as you see, from Spain, from present-day United States, actually, to uh, to uh, what is now Greater Russia. So I thought, from the early modern period, having a woman who showed her agency, her will, and her authority to rule for almost half a century deserves a place here. Um, in addition to that, I think again that is not in the book, is that women in the in that part of the world now, in uh, Tangier and around Tangier, around Tetuan, many women today earn a living by carrying heavy, heavy loads as they labor. So I thought this is also a tribute to their to their um, their lives and to them by including a woman a woman of um, their history in a history of Islam and my history of Islam. I I have to say I'm completely sold. Um, you move for obviously we're moving forward in time all the time and we're now going into the 16th century with a name that's very familiar to me because people like to name i don't know about it what it's like in new york but there's untold uh takeaways named right. after this lady <laughs> uh, and it's nur jahan yes. um, but the subtitle uh, she's got a lot to live up to with her subtitle because you you refer to her as light of the world why is that that, that was the that is the meaning of the of the title that she was yeah, given. Yeah. Right? Um, originally, she was called Nura Nisa, the uh, light of women, and then um, Nur Jahan. Um, her husband gave her that title, and the, her husband was the formidable Jahangir, the famous um, dilettante king of the Mughal area, the great king, of course, in his own right. Um, you know, I she, remember. Yeah, sorry. No, go on, you say, you tell your story and then I'll ask. I was, I just remembered uh, going through the British Museum last year and seeing some of the paintings uh, from the time of Jahangir. Um, but Nur Jahan um, is kind of uh, ironic only to have takeouts named after her. Yeah, <laughs> she deserves so much more. She, she is utterly unbreakable, power. isn't she? Absolutely, unbreakable is the word. You know, as an infant, her parents abandoned her to die by roadside, by the roadside inside the city of Kandahar, uh, now in Afghanistan, uh, because they didn't know what was waiting for them. They were running away from uh, Afghanistan because of political turmoil at the time, turmoil that had to do with the um, Iranian Safavid, Safavid court um, at their time. Most likely, um, they had um, connections with the, uh, with the Safavid court, and then there were changes there. So they were running away. And her future husband, Jahangir, at some point had her first husband hacked to death. Um, and he had executed her bro uh, loved brother as well. So, as you said, she was unbreakable. She survived, 
and she went on to practically and effectively rule the Mughal Empire. Right? There is a British observer at the time, some kind of emissary, who complains about uh, Nur Jahan having too much power. A woman <laughs> having too much power, yes. Now, we can forget the name of that emissary, but we... Uh, we, we don't forget her name. Yeah, he doesn't matter. Screw him. We don't, exactly. care. we don't care what his name was. He was clearly wrong. Exactly. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So the Mughal Empire, for those that don't know, so Nur Jahan um, originates from what is now Afghanistan and the Mughal Empire is uh, much of what is now India, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Bangladesh. It's immense, isn't it? Right, certainly. So light of the world is is not an understatement, um, which when you look at what she accomplished and what she ruled over and um, how is she remembered what kind of source material is there i mean there is a lot there is a lot about her in in mughal historiography and of course she is best remembered in connection with uh, the, with the taj mahal but she but taj mahal is not built, built for her but built yeah. for her uh, for her niece yeah but, but it was built on the model of the mausoleum that Nur Jahan had built for her own parents. So the idea and the ideal and the aesthetics partly come, again, if only indirectly, from Nur Jahan. I, I have to say, reading the book, she was one of my absolute favorites. Um, I just found her absolutely fascinating. Yes, I mean, it is um, uh, going back to the choice of who to, to include and to leave out, we have. I, I think I still have uh, more queens than I would that I would like. Yeah, have. but you know that has to do with the nature of our sources. Of course, Ordinary yeah. Ordinary people didn't make it in the history books, uh, men or women. So uh, this is the the um, imbalance of our sources that we know more about kings and queens when we know about women. We know more about queens than. Uh, ordinary people. So the next choice in the book is also uh, out of the ten. Another queen, um, 
I love the um, subtitle on her. You've put diamonds are not forever, but we're going to um, the Indian Ocean now, or we're going beyond India and we're going to Southeast Asia now. Yes, we're going to Indonesia. And Indonesia had a lot to do with, with India. I mean, Indonesia is a uh, later name. It was not known as such. Uh, it was known, what we are talking about was uh, called Aceh. And we are talking about the Queen of Aceh. You know, three women, three or four women ruled over Aceh uh, during the latter half, during the 17th century. And the first one of them, the, probably the most uh, important of them, was Tajul Alam Safiyatuddin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for going with that diamonds are not forever is that diamonds did play a very important role in her time. And so did the Dutch and the um, representatives of, of low countries where Diamonds were the were the main medium of exchange, or could be, were one of the most important mediums of exchange. And we have heard the story. You know, you I saw you are wearing a New York um, shirt, and I live in New York. We both love New York, and we have uh, both of us, and I think many of our listeners know the story of how uh, Peter Minuit. Um, the uh, director of the Dutch North American colony of New Netherlands, uh, or maybe some other um, representative of that company, paid 60 guilders to purchase the 2,000-acre land of what we know as Manhattan from the Lenape Indians back in 1626. Of course, they didn't really buy it, and the exact amount was not 60 guilders, um, but we have this story. Now, the biography of uh, Taj al-Alam is important um, because it is also tied to the story of the Dutch India Company, and they demanded that she should pay 100,000 guilders to their company to repay the debt that her husband had accrued or ordering some diamonds and rubies and very heavy um, throne, gold throne for himself. But then what she managed to do, she negotiated it, she lowered the price, and she refused to accept the Dutch colonial policy of using diamonds as the primary um, medium of exchange because they would not only control the market, they would also be able to control pricing. She refused to do that. She negotiated, and after several years, um, she and her uh, courtiers won, and one of her last orders or requests to the representative of the company, after she had successfully renegotiated the the deal was that the representatives of the company, the men, should come and dance for the pleasure and uh, uh, in front of her uh, women courtiers, right? And, and she mm-hmm. says, and we have, a, we have a report that it was a merry, a very merry occasion seeing them <laughs> <laughs> from afar, right? So I thought that this is definitely very important and there is a good book on her and on women in, in Indonesia, women rulers. And I have tried to keep the book uh, very straightforward, but yeah. at the same time I have provided um, pointers to literature. If 
should anyone be interested to pursue this further? Yeah, I mean, it's great. So tell everyone what is, what is her influential strain on Islam, because each one does represent something key in the history of Islam, don't they? Right. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, I mean, uh, <coughs> at the time, at the seven, during the 17th century, there seemed to be two versions, two visions of, of Islam. Uh, I mean, and I, I realize that this is simplistic to talk about Islam as one entity, mm -hmm. and that was one of Well, we have one hour to give people an introduction, so I'm right? sure you can't criticize you for not telling 100% of the story. Right, right. Yeah. This is just a history. And, yeah. and then, so in uh, Southeast Asia, what was sometimes emphasized, and certainly Tajul Alam was uh, responsible partly for emphasizing that, was a more mystical, philosophical, and inclusive uh, vision of Islam versus a more um, literalist, legally-oriented uh, understanding of Islam. Now, at the end, what happens is that the three or four uh, women rulers of Indonesia are displaced by the other faction who said, well, women are not fit to rule, but because they are women. But as long as she was in, in power, she maintained this idea that Islam is more inclusive, has to be more inclusive, by focusing not so much on law, but on philosophical, mystical readings of... of uh, and that is, uh, again, a topic for much more in-depth uh, discussion Absolutely. <laughs> in my biography, my short biography. Mm. I mean, the next one you've done, the next person that you've used, you've used her as a, a window into the Fulani Jihad at the turn of the right. 19th century, haven't you? So tell us exactly. who she is and why she was important. Uh, right, we know her as Nana Asmao, right? She lived from uh, 793 to 1864. And as a young woman, as a young girl, she witnessed the Fulani Jihad, in which her father, uh, Osman Dan Fadio, was the leader, and he himself had been a um, very influential Muslim uh, preacher and leader in 19th century uh, Africa. And um, his call was a call to returning to the roots of Islam, to the original message of the Prophet. And Nana Asma'u, growing in his household, um, was reared with the same ideas and, and she played a very important, important role by bringing those ideas to women, um, Muslim and non-Muslim, because the um, first half of the 19th century in, in continental Africa is a point, uh, is a time when Africa is, had been suffering for a long time under a colonial presence, right? We have an account of that mm -hmm. from a Christian point of view in uh, in the classic novel, it's a beautiful modern classic novel by uh, Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart, um, right? How colonialism just eroded the local basis of life. And this is about the northern part of, of uh, Nigeria and surrounding countries, uh, and is more, is more related to how Islam became a force of bringing people together, especially women through education. Right? We hear these horrible and horrific stories about how 
terrorist groups these days um, oppose the schooling of girls in, in Africa, in Nigeria. Whereas a hundred years ago... And this is not an Islamic teaching, is it? Exactly. Not to educate your exactly. girls. Exactly. It educates your girls. That's a prophetic teaching. So, and Asmao and Nana Asmao actually stood for that. So people would come to her from far away and she was conversant in uh, two or three languages. She could write in more than one language. She wrote in Arabic. She uh, wrote, wrote in lo local languages. She taught women to sing and to memorize uh, Islamic teachings. And this was all under the so-called uh, Sokoto Caliphate uh, that was eventually um, dismantled by the British at the turn of the 20th century. My point in highlighting Nana Asma'u's life was not to celebrate the Caliphate, but to celebrate women's education and, and the woman's role as an educator and as a guide. I loved her. Um, I really, I really loved the next lady as well because uh, it was something with the geographical spread of your book. I was surprised when you had a Russian one in here, and then I thought, why am I surprised? The Russian Empire was massive. Um, of course, there were Islamic uh, groups in the Russian Empire, and this lady um, is among them, isn't she? And she's still very much celebrated now. Very much so. Very much so. And. Um she was born in 1869, so just a few years after Nana Asmao died, in uh, Tatarstan. Uh, Tatarstan, <coughs> as the word uh, is a giveaway, is the homeland of the Tatar people. And there's a long history um, from the time that, that uh, uh, Russian founders of uh, what we know as modern Russia or early modern Russia conquered the port of Kazan. And she was born just a few hundred kilometers from Kazan. And she received a religious education. Her father was a religious uh, educator. And so were her mother and grandmother. They also had and played a big role in educating local children, including girls. Uh, the point again is that women made a difference. Women mattered in, in, in the history of Islam. And anyone who says otherwise, especially the Orientalist point of view that denies this presence and agency and subjectivity of women, is simply mistaken. And by, by perpetuating those narratives, those false narratives, we also misrepresent the future. You see, uh, Mukhlas Abubi, um, about whom I've written in this chapter, um, became the first Muslim judge, a uh, woman judge, the first female Muslim judge. And she eventually uh, lost her life during the purge uh, led by, um, by Stalin. Mm -hmm. right? We don't hear as much about the um, carnage that Stalin caused, especially in the Muslim communities of of the empire, right? So she is one of the examples and the very heroic example of what was achieved. And as you said, one of the guiding principles in, in choosing these biographies was what my mentor and friend, uh, Richard Bullitt, um, said. He said, don't go for low hanging fruit. And yeah. one day he told me, can you find the Bolshevik woman? <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> I will look for that. 
and this was the closest I get I got and at the point is that show the presence of women throughout Islamic history and that and, and she's one one of the examples um I, I loved her. Right, I'm going to get our listeners. This is one that I, a lot of our listeners, because there are a lot of military people that listen to this. If I say that this lady was born in Russia, grew up in England, came of age in France, and died in Germany, I'm pretty sure there's people screaming out loud now that they know who this is, because this is one that is much more well known, isn't it? Who is it? I, I hope she is well known. She deserves Absolutely. to be well known. She's been mentioned a few times on the podcast already. I see. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she was being considered for um, uh, for her face and name to be printed on a fifty-pound note. It didn't happen, but there is at least one statue of her in London that I <laughs> every year I when I go to London I make sure to visit. Mm. Now, and if anyone touches that statue, I will put them down on the floor <laughs> now, um, so we're talking to, about Noor Inayat Khan aren't we exactly Noor Inayat yeah. Khan and I have to say that she was not my pick but it was suggested to me by the editor by my editor and I uh, gladly and um, humbly accept I was going to include um, the Prime Minister of Pakistan um, oh, Bhutto. and some people some reviewers have criticized me for not including her Mm. But in retrospect, I think Noor Inayat Khan was a better choice in mm. many ways. Partly because her case shows, and is very relevant to how Muslim women in particular have to face uh, what is called cultural assimilation and fitting in. And she's a good example. She not only managed to fit in, but she served during the war and she became a, what one could say, a martyr in uh, the Second World War, and she was shot dead in a, a Nazi concentration camp, as, as um, your listeners uh, certainly would know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just a remarkable storyteller, musician, Sufi woman, right? Coming from Rabia as our fourth biography in the book and our second biography in our conversation today. He was also a Sufi. She was, uh, she was raised on Sufi ideals by her Indian father and um, American mother. <laughs> um, I think um, she certainly deserves a place in a history of Islam around women. How much did it hurt to leave out Benazir Bhutto? Um, I, I think there are other women one could include. Mm. And I hope this is just a history of Islam, 21 women. I hope other people, yeah. other histories include other women. There are many other women who uh, do deserve a place in the history of Islam. This is just I love that you've called it a history a of history. Islam. It's not the history of Islam. Absolutely. Um, but I, w I visited Pakistan as a very small child, and I remember mm. seeing her face painted on the side of a wall. Um, and I was taught by my grandmother who passed away last year um, oh, yes. to to look up to this woman. Um, so I certainly, I don't know much about her, but I do remember being told that's what a woman could do. And actually when my, I'm really quite proud, when my grandmother died um, last year, it transpired that she had left her family ancestral home um, 
to the community with the express proviso that it be used as a school for girls. Wow. Yeah. Which wow, I'm really quite proud of. Yeah, what rather than yeah, rather than or or uh, like a women's clinic, it's for women, um, and it's would, for the the benefit of local women. It's in a rural community, so I was really quite proud of that. Could you share your grandmother's name with us? <laughs> I'll tell you when we come off air. I'd have okay. to. I, I she's just because she's always just been mummy to me. Oh, I can have a look. <laughs> this is wonderful. So yeah. all the great moms of the world. Yes, I mean, and these women here. They are all moms or grandmoms. Mm, absolutely. You know, no. yeah. She Thank was you. lovely. <laughs> but now you've got one more to tell us about, haven't you? Um, oh, the last one. <laughs> and we're, we're on to the six-day war, and that's where you chose to choose your final in your top ten, didn't you? In the top ten, not in the book itself. The book itself comes, I think, yeah. the last biography. She's 19th, I think. In the, yeah, she's 19th. Yes, in the yes. so, you know, there is a nice documentary, really good documentary, and also a great scholarly work on uh, this uh, Egyptian Arab icon of the 20th century, Um Kulthum. Mm -hmm. And there's an interview with a man on the street in that clip. It's available on YouTube. Whoever wants to search Um Kulthum uh, and biography, they will find it. So when asked about her place in Egyptian society, this man on the streets of Cairo explains, ex exclaims, Um Kulthum? She's like the pyramids, of course. <laughs> That's that's uh, who Um Kulthum was to a whole generation of uh, Arab and Muslims, um, especially because of her role in redefining um, Arab identity and uh, an honor after the Six Day War in 1967 between Arab and Israeli army. You know, that was the war that reshaped the Middle East in, in many ways. And its memory lives on, of course, and it's a very political topic. I've tried, again, to avoid controversy, but the importance of Um Kulthum, of how a woman, how a singer uh, managed to bring peoples together from Morocco to not only Iraq and the rest of the Arab world, but also in Iran and in, in, in Pakistan and in Turkey. She was a woman who certainly mattered and made a difference, huge difference. So she certainly deserves uh, an important place of honor in a history of Islam, just as uh, any history of Egypt has a place for the pyramids. Absolutely. Um before we finish, tell me then, which one really did break your heart? Which one did you agonize over leaving out? Uh, leaving out. I don't dwell on those I have left out because I hope other people uh, will go on and do more. Mm -hmm. But let me say what I hope I uh, probably have accomplished. Uh, something that didn't make it in the book, but reading this statement really agonized me um, and I just wanted to show how misogynistic and how wrong such statements are mm -hmm. so let me find this and read this uh, um, this, this comes from uh, a very influential orientalist book uh, that was produced in England at the University of London, back in the 70s. Oh, I'm dreading it already. Right. It is <laughs> yeah, 
yes, yes, it is representative, not only of the Orientalist view, the European misogynistic Orientalism, but also it is echoed in misogynistic histories by uh, many Muslims as well. Mm. So the, the uh, citation is this, I quote, the resulting emotional repertoire of Islamic culture was a decidedly unromantic one. The only obverse to the gravitas of the Muslims is the giggling of the women. End quote. Isn't that disgusting? I apologize for even uh, reading that. No, it is disgusting. And I have to say that I've done a lot of traveling in the last two and a half years and some of the best places I've been has right. been and met the most beautiful people have been Egypt, right. Amman, right. Jordan, right. Um, and I just, I love, thank you so much for answering my stalky email and coming onto this podcast because thank I went so looking um, for a, a history of Islam to educate myself and I found your book and I, I just thank you for trying you to again, bring Alex. a new history to people to read on Islam through the eyes of such remarkable women. It's such a good idea. And like you say, it's a history. It's not a definitive, mine is the be all and end all history of Islam, but it's a, this is how you engage people. You do stuff like this. And it's a beautiful idea and it's a beautiful book. It's called A History of Islam in 21 Women. It's available now. Buy it for your daughters because it is full of women that they need to know about and need to thank read about. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks for having me on, no, thank on your you. program. All the best. Join us tomorrow when it's back to World War II because it's a Monday and we will be talking to Andy Brockman and Tracy Spate all about the fake spitfires of Burma. We've got some fake history for you. Uh, that's not like anything we've ever done yet on this, but it's brilliant. Uh, they were great. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.